Alex Ferguson is famous for giving the hairdryer treatment. Winston Churchill was renowned for not holding back with his cabinet. Simon Cowell, infamous for laying into the wannabe next singing superstars. Here we have Jesus, and perhaps we're familiar with Jesus and his words of encouragement. His words of clarity, soft, helpful. We see different words from Jesus today. It's not the Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. It's Jesus, as is recorded from John, with words that are sharp, like a double-edged sword. We see that twice. So buckle up because we know God's word is honey to our lips. We know that it's a lamp unto our feet. We know that it's of huge encouragement but also it's 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 full of training and teaching and it can rebuke and it can correct. And so we pray that today it would do one of those things uh, for us all in the room. Remember Revelation 1.1. Here's the revelation. It's from Jesus Christ. Revelation means that it's revealed. It's meant to be understood. The book of Revelation is meant to be understood. Which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. What's the big message? Here's the big message. I am coming, says the Lord Jesus. The king is coming. So live in light of that. In the place where God has called you, with all that the world and the culture throws at you, live in the light that the king is coming. How do we keep a right perspective? Well, it starts in Revelation, John. In Revelation, um, as John records, it starts with a new vision of Jesus. Remember that throughout the whole chapter. Here's the picture of the living Lord Jesus, the resurrected Christ. In the first week we shared a hymn together, I saw a new vision of Jesus, a view that I'd not seen here before. That's how we're to live, in light of the new vision of the risen Lord Jesus who is coming back. Yes, he is coming back. So it's the letter to the church in Pergamum. And it's the letter for the church at Town Church Bicester. It's a letter specific to Pergamum. A letter for all ages at all times. The seven churches here in Revelation, that number seven is the complete church. So it's the church for all throughout the ages. And so we come to Pergamum. To Christians in the midst of persecution for following Jesus, pressed to worship the emperor, tempted to conform and give up, as suffering and death looms. Three things that the Lord Jesus has to say to the church and indeed has to say to us. Here's the first one. Remain true like Antipas. Remain true like Antipas. 
Verse 12, let's go to the church, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Pergamum, sorry, Johnny, slide back, I've, I've changed the order, sorry. Um, slide back, here's Pergamum, see it there, the furthest most northern church uh, that John writes to. Capital of the Roman province of Asia uh, at the time. Wealthy and fashionable. So we're talking kind of New York status, Paris, Milan, Tokyo, fashionable and wealthy. Pergamum means citadel. It's a fortress situated 10 miles east of the Aegean Sea, lofty isolated hill on the northern side of a broad valley with a river running through it. It's where, John says, Jesus says, it's where Satan has his throne. See those words? Verse 13, where Satan has his throne. At the end of verse 13, where Satan lives. So as the people lived in the valley on top of this hill, this crest, this ridge, this is what the saying where Satan has his throne could mean. Because Pergamon was full of pagan temples. And right on the top, the crest of the hill, a massive temple to Zeus. Could this be the throne of Satan that John is talking about? Built in 29 BC, so it would be brand new, looming over the city. But also Pergamum is the place where the first temple has been built to the, the Roman emperor. This is the first time that the Roman emperor has had a temple built, known then as the imperial cult, where people would bow down and worship and offer incense to the Roman emperor. There's another temple, Aspelius, the Greek god of healing. And a symbol on top of this temple was a snake's head. All three references could be in regard to the quote where Satan has his throne. We're not sure which, but get the picture. What a place. Look at the encouragement within this. I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. It's where pagan worship is rife. It's where the, the emperor, the imperial cult is bowing down and worshipping the emperor. But I know where you live, says the Lord Jesus. I know what kind of culture you have to live in. I know that the culture is set up against you. I know that it is remarkably hard. Satan has his grip on this city. And yet... Look, we read in those verses that the Christians are holding on. Satan has a grip, yet the Christians are holding on. Look in those two ways, verse 12. Verse 13, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Look, two areas where the Christians are holding on. You remain true to the name of Jesus. You trusted it. Now, hold on to the new vision. He's the highest name. The Lord Jesus, his name is higher 
than the emperor. His name is higher than Zeus. His name is higher than Aspelius, the Greek god of healing. For Jesus' name is higher than Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, Angela Merkel, Eddie Jones. The Lord Jesus' name is higher. And so Jesus is saying, well done. You're holding on to me. You're remaining true to the name of Jesus. And secondly, you've not renounced faith. Don't throw it away. Stand strong. Look, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. We don't know much about Antipas. We simply know that he died for his faith. A Christian martyr. Look, in those times, even in those times, when death came to the Christian, you remain true to the name of Jesus and you have not renounced faith. Is it not hugely encouraging that he knows? That Jesus knows? Where do you feel that? Where do you feel the pinch of society, of culture? Where do you feel that names in your work culture, in your school, in your social group, names are higher than the Lord Jesus? Sure, we're not getting persecuted like the Christians were here in Pergamum. But there's hostility towards Christians who supposedly have narrowed views. Perhaps the battle to hold on to Christian Orthodox teaching in view of sexuality. Perhaps amongst friends where the roll of the eyes or the snigger or the scornful correction as someone else blasphemes in the staff room and people say, whoa, 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 not in front of so-and-so. He knows. He knows your context. He knows your situation. He knows the temptations, the pressures. He knows. And Jesus is saying here, look, you're remaining true to the name of Jesus. Keep holding on to it. You're not renouncing faith. Don't throw it away. Stand strong. But you see, this is not the current battle that the church in Pergamum are facing. Do you see that? In the days of Antipas. Uh, look, it's like Satan can't attack them in this way. Antipas is gone. He's been a martyr. He's stood strong. It's like Satan is trying his hardest to, to bring about perse persecution. But what have they done? They've remained true to the name of Jesus and they have not renounced the faith. So... The current battle is different. Satan is attacking them in another way. And here's what it is. Throughout history, we see Satan, the devil, attacking Christians in two ways. And he'll do the same at town church. He'll use distortion. He'll push some people's views of Christianity, of the Bible, to an extreme where we get a distorted view of the Lord Jesus. He'll make us doubt the authenticity of his word to the point where we give up on faith. 
He'll distort the truth. He's done that through the ages. It's why so many of Paul's letters are to address the distortion of the truth within the church. And secondly, he'll thrust disunity into the church. He'll make people at town church fall out about secondary issues. Here we see Satan distorting the truth in the church in Pergamum. Second point, repent and correct your ways. Look at verse 14 and 15. Let me read 14. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There are some, says the Lord Jesus. It's not all the church. There are some. And you're holding to teaching that goes against the teaching of Jesus. You're holding to the teaching of Balaam. Numbers 24, 28 in the Old Testament. Here's the reference. Some of you might know this. Others of you will not. Here's the story very quickly of what happened in Numbers 25 to 28. It's well worth a read if you get a moment tonight, perhaps amongst Netflix or watching the rugby Uh, or match of the day. Worth going into Numbers 25, 28. Balak was king of Moab uh, at the time, and he was under threat from the growing surgeons of the Israelites. So Balak, with plenty of money, hired the prophet Balaam. And Balaam came to carry out curses Balak the king wanted Balaam, the prophet, to to bring curses on the Israelites. And every time Balaam's voice was heard, every time his mouth was opened, instead of bringing the curses that the king of Moab wanted, all he did was bring blessing. He spoke prophecy of blessing to the Israelites, to defeat, to Moab. He did not achieve anything by his words that Balak desired him to do this. And there's one verse, just one verse in Numbers 31, verse 16. And it says this. Balaam's words were always turned around for good by God. But let me quote. They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Balaam is the prophet. Balak wanted him to speak curses on the Israelites. And all that came out of Balaam's mouth was was promises, was blessing to the Israelites. However, he managed to, to wangle his way in and talk to the Moabite women to wangle their way into the Israelite men so that they'd be tempted to offer pagan sacrifices in return for sex. What Balaam was unable to do in his prophesying, he managed to subtly do through talking with the Moabite women. And we have that one verse in Numbers 31, 16. It's the same in Pergamon. 
Some of you are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We heard about those in, in the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus. And, and so what is going on? There's, there's perhaps festivities of religious worship in Pergamum to the, the god Zeus and, and to, to others in temples. And these pagan rituals, they included sexual immorality. They included sleeping uh, with women within the temple. And there are some people in the church who are shrugging their shoulders at that and saying, does that really matter? Listen, we've held true to the name of Jesus and and we're not renouncing him and we're, we're holding on to his faith. And so the message here from Jesus to the church in Pergamum, to the leaders, but to all, do not tolerate that. Discipline. Do not let this spread. Root it out. See, Satan could not destroy the church by persecution, but here he is sneaking in subtly. Where is he doing that for us at Town Church? In what way is he doing that? Perhaps we just shrug our shoulders and say, I I kind of know that person's living in that way. Um, I don't think they should really, but hey, that's not really my responsibility. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not right. Stop. Look, I'm, I'm sure there's nobody in here that is worshipping pagan, pagan gods <coughs> through numerous sexual relationships. I'm pretty sure that's not the case. But the, the, the culture that we live in can easily pervade into our church, quietly undermining us, making us drift. Where do we face that as a church naturally, where, nationally? Where do we face that in town church? <coughs> Perhaps it's our use of the internet. Many, many good sermons on the internet as we listen to teachers on the internet. But there are many very popular Bible teachers who distort the truth, who give license to live like the world. Many. If you're in doubt, say myself, Johnny or Cy, just to check. Because there are some great ones too. (coughs) What about in the way that we handle the Bible? What about the people that preach the Bible? It's why we always say, keep your Bibles open, just so you check and make sure it's not some words of, of guys at the front just giving their best. No, no, check that. Check that it's God's word. Where do we in our lives... Because we're tempted to live a certain way. We're tempted to hold on things of the world. Where are we tempted to say, listen, does God's word really say that? Perhaps it's becoming complacent, especially in our dealing with sex and lust. Perhaps... We question God and say, does God really say that? Does he mind if I act in that way or look at that on the internet? 
And Jesus here is saying, don't let that happen. That is the way that the devil will get a foothold. The three major hurdles, pitfalls for us, perhaps in the West, power, sex, money. Where are we careful in these areas? It's why we have growth groups. It's why we have home groups. Encouraged to talk about these areas. Talk about the temptations that they bring. Where are you tempted in the area of sex? To distort the teaching of Jesus in God's word. To shrug your shoulders and say, does it really matter if I act like that or view that? Where are you tempted to bow at the throne of power, to seek after it, to go for it, and to try and make a name for yourself above the name of the Lord Jesus. Are you tempted to treasure money more than you treasure Christ, to hold on to that a little bit more, to think, oh, I, I can't really fit in my tithe in my giving to the church or Christian organisations? Look at verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Back to verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. See, the church has to repent. It's not to shrug its shoulders and say, I know They live like that, but that's okay. Jesus will come with the sword of his mouth. His words will cut. His words might cut today, and that's okay. Hebrews 4 verse 12, big warning. For the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word will cut right through. And it's our job collectively as a church. It's our job to look after people. It's our job to let God's word speak and cut if it has to, like a double-edged sword. There's no sharper weapon. Well, finally, to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write this, John, as the new vision of the Lord Jesus, Jesus teaches him. Remember the promises, third point. Remember the promises. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is, who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Whoever has ears. Pretty sure we all have ears in the room. So where do you need to hear God's words? His word, like a double-edged sword, cutting in. Where will you let the Spirit work in your heart? 
<laughs> and it's brilliant. Here Jesus goes, look to the one who is victorious, to the one who keeps holding on to the name of Jesus, that doesn't renounce faith, but doesn't let the devil subtly come in. Look, this is the one who is victorious. And look, here are three promises. I will give some of them hidden. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give some the sustaining food of God, manna in the Old Testament, the food that God supplied in the moments of need. Hidden because we don't receive it yet. But one day all will be revealed. The sustaining food of God. Hold on to that promise to come. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. A white stone. I think uh, the guys in junior church are, well, they're potentially getting white stones to write their name on it. A white stone in those days cast in a courtroom. If it was white, not guilty. If it was black, guilty. Or a white stone used with an, as an invitation, handed out with your name written on it and you came to the party and it had your name on it to hand over to the guest. Whatever uh, John, Jesus through John is meaning here. Here's the white stone, not guilty or your name invited to the party. But it's not quite your name because you've got a new name. You see that with a new name written on it, branded by God, known as his, God's new name for you. My child, come, hidden manner, not guilty, come to the party. Remember the promises Jesus urges the church in Pergamum. And if we delve a bit deeper into those promises, we see wonderful promises of forgiveness, forgiveness of sins, acceptance by God. Come, you're mine. The people in Pergamum looking up to the crest of the hill, tempted to be overwhelmed by the throne of Satan, Zeus's temple. No, no, no. Live in light of the promises. You've held on to the name of Jesus. You've not renounced faith. There's pressure now from within. Satan will subtly be pulling some of you away. And some of you might just pull others by the shrug of your shoulder saying, hey, that's okay. That's all right. Dear church, don't let them. Don't. Hear God's word. May it cut hard. May it cut right. May it cut so that you'll throw yourself on him and you'll throw yourself on the promises of forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins and acceptance by God and you'll be victorious. And he'll call you home and he'll say, you're mine, good and faithful servant.